Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, an award-winning documentary looking at the outrageous activities of the Johns Committee in the mid-20th century will be screened October 15th at the University of Central Florida Cocoa Campus. I think one of the scariest things about this documentary, aside from the fact that it's only 50 years ago, is that... We have this feeling that this could happen again. We'll discuss letters between President Andrew Jackson and Vice President John C. Calhoun. But it deals with an event that goes back to 1818, what we now refer to as the First Seminole War, uh, when General Andrew Jackson invaded uh, a sovereign uh, territory, which was Spanish Florida, in pursuit of Seminole Indians. And the Spalding store from the British Territorial Period. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. They were calling in students as well as faculty and staff and harassing them. They questioned me for 15, 16, 17 hours. I was there all night till the next day. I was terrified when they called me in there. I, I just didn't know what to expect. I denied everything and that, that was the end of it. So I was afraid of everything. Who I talked to, what happened, so we ended up not going to classes. I thought everybody was watching me. The Committee is an award-winning half-hour documentary produced by students in the Honors College at the University of Central Florida. The film explores the outrageous activities of the Johns Committee. Formed by the Florida Legislature in 1956, the Johns Committee investigated what it labeled subversive activities in state colleges, civil rights groups, and suspected communist organizations. Eventually, the primary focus of the Johns Committee was to remove homosexual teachers and students from Florida universities. Filmmaker and student Monica Monticello describes how this cooperative documentary effort came together. Well, it's called an interdisciplinary seminar, which is hosted by the Burnett Honors College, and it was in conjunction with the UCF Film Department as well as the UCF History Department, and students from all majors within the Honors College were welcome to join the class and help in the production. Honor students from UCF's film program helped to give the project its professional look, and honor students from the history department made sure that the content was strong. But as filmmaker and student Logan Grady explains, a diverse group of students from a variety of disciplines participated. There was a lot. Um, we had students that were um, from accounting majors uh, to digital media and art majors uh, to more traditional film and TV production. Um, some that are journalism. There's a lot of different majors in the class. It wasn't just straight film students. Most people are aware of the communist witch hunt led by Joseph McCarthy that ruined many innocent lives in the mid-20th century. Less familiar is Florida's spinoff of McCarthy-era paranoia, the Johns Committee, which led interrogations of university professors and students in an attempt to eliminate homosexuality. Filmmaker and student Amy Simpson. Yeah, I think that the Johns Committee it was sort of directly spawned by the McCarthy era and that kind of fear because it was sort of originally about finding communists in the NAACP as well as among homosexuals but then it sort of turned into its own you know 
witch hunt for the homosexual students and teachers, especially in Florida. The Johns Committee was formed by state senator and former Florida governor Charlie Johns in 1956 with the help of the other conservative pork choppers in the very conservative Florida legislature. After failing to link communism to the NAACP, the Johns Committee turned its attention to homosexuals in 1961. Monica Monticello and Logan Grady. Charlie Johns was a state senator, and he uh, was the Senate president, and he became the governor of Florida after the previous governor died, and he lost his re-election bid, and as a result, went back to the Senate and created his Florida Legislative Investigation Committee, which he saw as his own personal state FBI. Initially, um, what he was trying to do with his Johns Committee uh, was, as explained in the film, too, it's, it's, you've, they've got uh, the whole McCarthyism and that issue coming about, and they're trying to root out the communists um, and get rid of the NAACP at the same time. Um, but their their efforts along those uh, veins were kind of uh, impeded, especially because the NAACP locked up on a lot of court cases. So eventually they, the Johns Committee just refocused its efforts on homosexuals because they saw that as a more viable thing that they could um, expel, so to speak, um, and not face as many issues in, in actually attaining that goal. So they kind of turned away from communism and the NAACP and they started going after LGBT students and teachers. This documentary covers what is ancient history to these student filmmakers. Some of their parents weren't even born when the Johns Committee was active, but interviewing people who lived through the outrageous abuses of power inflicted on them by the committee made this history real for these students. Uh, it definitely did, especially because, I mean, it took us so long to find people who had been interrogated who would cooperate with us. And so for a while, we didn't even think we would have anyone from that era. We thought we would just have, you know, professors and experts talk to us. And then finally we started getting, you know, these people who had been interrogated. Um, and it was just hearing their stories made it a completely different experience. And uh, it was just so real because... You know, it's history, but it's really not that long ago. And, you know, these people were there and it happened to them. And now they were in front of us talking about it. It took the uh, the idea of what we were researching from just words on a paper and, you know, what happened, sort of quote-unquote history, to something, someone's actual life, to someone's personal effects and what happened to them and what they experienced went through directly. Uh, and it speaks a lot to the ingenuity of the human spirit, too, when you see these people. And you see them, you know, years after what had happened to them and what they had faced and what they had been through and still being strong enough to talk about it, to want to do something to change it, to want to see, say, see something like this never happen again, um, that it really shows you their strength um, and, you know, what they went through and just how, you know, at the time you could tell just still in, just speaking to them, you know, how, how bad it was. And of course, you form this emotional connection with not only the people you interview, but with their stories. When you read the transcripts, you see, wow, this is terrible. I can't believe this happens. But when you speak to them in person and they say, they kept me in a basement for 17 hours, there's just this whole connection in your brain that you go, this happened to you. You're in front of me. I can't believe this happened. I had little girlfriends from the time I was an adolescent. But you kind of had to play the game. And even in high school, you knew that. So you had to have a boyfriend. Being gay was not a decision. It was just something that I never felt any other way. It's, it's like, uh, to me, it's completely natural. I mean, the idea of gay rights wasn't even on the radar back then. They were unthinkable back in 1960. Early on, I was just focused on being a student and trying to get through the challenges of, of, uh, of being at a 
large university uh, by myself. It was a challenge just to focus on my studies. I was on the swimming team. I swam for the University of Florida. I was always interested in photography, too. I wanted to be a band director. My band director and his wife suggested FSU. I loved FSU until my sophomore year when all of the stuff happened to me then. I was by that time, of course, in Marching Chiefs and really having a great time. I was just being a student, active in music, played intramural sports. I think that's where they found me because a lot of the girls that played intramurals were lesbians. So I think that's why I was targeted. They took me into the basement of the administration building into a room and I was there for at least 15 hours. I think it was probably closer to 17 because it was the next day. During that time, I was not offered the opportunity to go to the bathroom, to have anything to eat, or to have anything to drink. In addition to on-camera interviews with survivors of the Johns Committee, producers of this documentary were able to acquire interviews with a former police officer who helped with the interrogations more than 50 years ago and regrets it now. John Charleston, he was was really great working with us. He really did seem to show just a great deal of remorse when he talked about it. And when he was approached about the film, he was excited and he contacted us and he said, yes, please, I want to tell my story. It's been 50 years, it's been too long, people should know. The person who actually got him to speak with us was Chuck Woods, who was a student who John Charleston had pulled out of class to interrogate and working with Chuck Woods, I mean, he's just that kind of guy. He was He's very mm-hmm. social and so he said, oh, I saw John Charleston, do you want me to get him to be in your movie? And we were like, please, yes. <laughs> really excited about it and just seeing them just chatting um, about not just the past but, you know, the present and the future of LGBT rights. I mean, it was just amazing to see. And, you know, you could tell that Tileston had sort of made this sort of, I guess, emotional transformation since the original event happened. And I think he was, he did feel remorse about it. And, you know, he does have hope for the rights of minorities for the future. An entire honors class participated in the creation of the documentary called The Committee. Students Logan Grady, Monica Monticello, and Amy Simpson explained their roles in the process. I was one of the two co-producers of the film, um, and a lot of my work revolved around organizing um, the shoots, organizing what we would be doing with our money, how we can get from place to place um, for not just locations about where we're going to shoot background and B-roll, but also talking to the interviewees, talking to the handlers, reaching out to them and trying to see who would be willing to talk to us, who would want to talk with on talk with us on camera, and generally just checking up and making sure the rest of the teams were up to you know doing what they need to do as well. Um, but a lot of my day-to-day stuff was talking with people we were going to interview, whether they were survivors um, or John Tileston or other people down in South Florida um, and the authors, and just organizing the times and the locations of when we could go and where we could go interview them and make sure that that was available for us. Uh, I was on the script writing team and we were in charge of compiling all the transcripts from each of the interviews as well as conducting the interviews and coming up with the questions themselves. And later the task evolved into gathering photos and further evidence and then eventually writing the script itself. I was also on the script writing team and yes, it took involved many hours of <laughs> reading over scripts and deciding what would go in, what wouldn't, and how to put that all together. I mean, it was like a big puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> 
The committee has the look and feel of a professionally produced documentary, and the film is already getting a lot of positive attention. We've done a lot of community screenings so far, um, as well as now being accepted into some film festivals, which is kind of exciting for us because we'll be actually competing among, you know, quote-unquote bigger films and hopefully trying to get more of that uh, community support and outreach. People see us and know about us. Um, but we we competed at one um, specific festival or competition that had to do with uh, student-produced films, and that was with the Broadcast Educators Association. We, had to, we actually ended up winning an award from then, Best of Competition, and then we are competing at the Gasparilla International Film Festival in Tampa, and we'll be screening there, as well as um, doing a small panel presentation and screening of the film at a uh, honors conference that is also happening in Tampa at the same time. And we're, com- we're submitting to a few other film festivals, some that are LGBT-specific, some that are just general, just trying to get more of a word out there. We've got more plans to submit to more film festivals and hopefully get screened at them. Feelings about homosexuality are largely generational, with comfort levels increasing as the population's ages decrease. Still, Monica Monticello, Amy Simpson, and Logan Grady are very aware that gay rights are still a hotly debated issue today. I think one of the scariest things about this documentary, aside from the fact that it's only 50 years ago, is that we have this feeling that this could happen again. I mean, maybe it's not the attack on the LGBTQ students and teachers. Maybe it's an attack on a different minority. But it's what happens when one small group of elite just become obsessed with power and are corrupted by their power. And it's what the majority can do to any minority group. One of the questions we asked everyone we interviewed was, do you think this could happen again? And none of them said, no, never. I mean, it was all, you know, you can never say never to this kind of thing, and history does repeat itself. And um, when there's this feeling of fear, and especially when, you know, economics aren't doing very well and people are afraid of outside groups, that's when this kind of thing happens. And you can see that happening in our nation right now, and that's what makes it very scary, too. And even to bring it back to uh, the sort of the LGBT focus, you know, even though we've reached so many different strides and things have advanced since then, and gay people are more accepted right now, we're talking about gay um, adoption and marriage and things like that. Um, it, I mean, there's just that's just one portion of the entire spectrum. LGBTQ includes a lot of people. Trans people are still facing discrimination in a lot of realms today. Just last week, a trans woman was disqualified from a beauty pageant because she wasn't technically born female. So they're still facing things, even though we're making all these strides with um, specifically gay stuff, they're they're still facing all of the discrimination and issues. So yes, most certainly I think it could happen again today, and hopefully the point of this film is to educate people against, um, as you guys spoke about, you know, the majority um, repressing the minority, whatever it is. The documentary The Committee is produced by honor students at the University of Central Florida and looks at the Johns Committee's efforts to eliminate homosexuality in Florida schools in the mid-20th century. The award-winning film will be screened October 15th at 4 p.m. on the UCF Coco campus, featuring a discussion with the film's directors, Robert Casanello and Lisa Mills. When they began to arrest people, they found that they were arresting teachers, and they discovered that a number of the teachers had gone to the University of Florida. R.J. Strickland was the chief investigator for the Johns Committee. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about all of the great activities presented by the Florida Historical Society. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org.
This is Florida Frontiers. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, we're looking at a collection of private letters between President Andrew Jackson and Vice President John C. Calhoun that became very public. That's right. The particular letters we're looking at uh, deal with the the period from uh, 1830 to 1831. There's this personal exchange between John C. Calhoun and uh, then-President Andrew Andrew Jackson. Uh, but it deals with an event that goes back to 1818, what we now refer to as the First Seminole War, uh, when General Andrew Jackson invaded uh, a sovereign uh, territory, which was Spanish Florida, in pursuit of Seminole Indians, who he uh, perceived as being belligerents and, and uh, uh, as he saw, they were harboring runaway uh, slaves from American plantations. So Jackson essentially took it upon himself, uh, led his army into uh, Spanish Florida, not only chasing after the Seminoles, destroying some of their towns, but then occupying Spanish posts, including uh, Pensacola. He uh, and his forces occupied the city of Pensacola without any direct orders from then-President Monroe or the Secretary of War, John C. Calhoun. So this, uh, the issues really stemmed from this 1818 event. So we fast forward to uh, 1830. John C. Calhoun is now the vice president of the United States. Andrew Jackson is, of course, the president of the United States. Uh, and uh, these issues, again, sort of uh, come up, and, and it becomes part of the, the national argument. Uh, and these two very public, uh, powerful figures are essentially uh, submitting letters to local newspapers um, at, at a very personal level. And this personal conflict was part of a, a really a larger national debate over U.S. policies toward territorial rights, uh, as well as the Seminole Wars. Yeah, that's right. This is a, a fascinating period in U.S. history, and specifically in Florida history, when Florida was still a U.S. territory. Of course, after Jackson had invaded uh, West Florida and occupied the Spanish towns, uh, the negotiations began and what would become the adams Nist Treaty, Florida was then uh, transferred from uh, Spain to the United States and became a U.S. territory, would eventually become a U.S. state. Um, But the issues uh, still remain with how to deal with the Seminole Indians, um, how to deal with the issue uh, stemming from from runaway slaves leaving uh, southern plantations and and fleeing into uh, what was considered kind of a lawless territory in in Florida, Um, but also other greater national issues between states' rights, uh, the rights of uh, proliferation of slavery in U.S. territories, um, and Jackson and Calhoun tended to their, their views tended to diverge quite a bit um, until it really came uh, to a head in, in 1830. Uh, and after 1831, in fact, uh, the last few letters that were published in 1831, Jackson and Calhoun never spoke again. Uh, at least publicly, uh, because it became so personal. And and Calhoun felt that it was his duty to uh, rehash these events that took place in 1818 to help clear his name. Uh, Because in uh, in 1818, he's produced these letters to prove that as Secretary of War, he had actually approached uh, President Monroe to uh, censure Jackson uh, because of his actions. And and he um, did not condone the actions at all and and felt that it was um, completely wrong to to invade a country that the United States was not at war with and and very dangerous for Jackson to do so. Uh, So this collection of letters, although it deals specifically with an incident in Florida, um, we can really learn a lot about national politics um, at the time. And every so often, Andrew Jackson comes up on one of your uh, Today in Florida History Facebook posts, and Andrew Jackson still today really inspires some powerful responses from people. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, Jackson is, is a complicated figure, uh, especially during his time in, in the military. Uh, of course, he's famous for uh, defeating the British during the War of 1812 at the Battle of New Orleans. Um, but he's also infamous for, uh, you know, instituting the Indian removal uh, laws in, in, the, in uh, the 1820s, 1830s. Um, and, and the Seminole Indians, of course, were uh, part of that Indian removal, and, and that led to the Second Seminole War, one of the bloodiest uh, conflicts between Native Americans and uh, U.S. forces uh, in U.S. history. Uh, so he is a complicated figure. Uh, of course, he rose to, to national prominence and, and was a powerful figure in Washington. And a lot of these Florida issues, um, you know, plagues him. I think throughout his throughout his life. Uh, but you're right; it, it's uh, difficult to to um, you know say, well, he was a great president or you know a, a great leader. Um, you know, he was a, a certainly a, a talented military strategist and um, was a, a cunning politician. Um, but uh, all of these figures, as we look back uh, in history, we, we find that um, uh, the, uh, the truth is, is much uh, more uh, muddy than I think we, uh, we, we would like. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at the Spalding Store from Florida's British Territorial Period. The Spalding Store, we, you wouldn't naturally think of it as being part of this Atlantic trading network, but a lot of the, all of the goods that were involved, uh, that were traded at the Spalding Store, were part of the network in the sense that the deer skins and the other um, uh, skins, pelts, or even um, uh, manufactured goods that the natives created were traded at the store for European goods like tools, occasionally weapons, um, cloth, uh, textile clothing, things like that. That was Dr. Daniel Murphy from the University of Central Florida telling me about the Spalding Store, which was an Indian trading company during the British colonial period in Florida history. They had two outposts, one called the Upper Store that was in what is today Astor, Florida, and a lower store that is near what is today Palatka. Here, Dr. Andrew Frank from Florida State University tells us about some of the things that might have happened at the Spalding store during this time. It was a, an outpost that was part of a really large economic and diplomatic system. Right? Trade and diplomacy went hand in hand. The Indians would come there right, as part of both the desire to get better or more desirable material goods and to kind of get rid of surplus deer skins, but they would also go there to trade information, um, to make relationships, 
And so it was a, a, a meeting ground, right? There wasn't much in terms of cultural production there, right? They weren't engaged in creating some sort of new world there, but rather it was a place where the Europeans who worked at the Spalding store would speak Muskogee Creek. Um, they would engage in kind of the diplomacy of trade. They would have set prices. There would be some haggling and negotiation. There would be gift giving. Um, often um, the Indians and Europeans would either drink or eat or, or do some sort of ceremonial functions together, but they would come together largely for the purpose of taking deer skins from the interior of Florida and, and for that matter, Georgia, and so they can get the skins to Savannah and Charleston, and the Indians would go home with the European goods that they're looking for. Everything from needles, thread, beads, buttons, copper pots, bolts of cloth, guns, ammunition, sometimes knives. The Spalding Star was one point in a larger cross-Atlantic global trading network. Dr. Murphy explains. Most stores like the Spalding Store emerged first um, involved with the uh, uh, deerskin trade. Navis would bring the deerskins to the um, towns to trade them, usually get some kind of material wealth in exchange, and then these deerskins would enter the Atlantic, the transatlantic um, trade. The Spalding store in particular is interesting because it's uh, just off the St. John's River, and it was probably one of the most southern located store uh, trading outposts involved in these kind of things. And it evolved over time not just to be involved in the deerskin trade, but to be kind of a, a central supply uh, depot for both Indians and colonists uh, in the region. The economic impact was not the only influence these trading stores had on the 18th century. Dr. Murphy tells us how they could also be part of some diplomatic intrigue and competition. The interesting thing about these trading depots, like the, the Spalding um, store, is that they, you can kind of trace the um, imperial rivalries and boundaries changing during this period. Or during the British period, you saw a lot of these trading outposts, especially in kind of the northern tier of Florida. But they began to change in their, their characteristics during the second Spanish period, mostly because the, the, the Spanish, it's not so much that they discouraged these outposts, but they, they tended to favor some trading groups over others. And there was also a lot more hesitation by colonists and what was becoming the United States to trade with these um, outposts over the border. And then by the time the Florida becomes a territory, you essentially see a lot of the the, the Spalding store type of uh, trading outpost um, disappear because the U.S. was much less interested in trading with native peoples like the Spanish or the British before them, and this was kind of the dawn of the removal period too. After the British and Second Spanish period, Florida became a U.S. territory, and Dr. Frank tells us what replaced the system of Indian trading stores. Right, stores more or less get replaced by forts, um, and forts sometimes serve the same functions. Uh, right, so you can go to the fort and you can sometimes trade with a U.S. agent, but the trade is much more limited and, and constrained, and it comes with really um, explicit diplomatic. Um, strings, right? So at the Spalding store, you can come and you trade, and the presumption is if you trade with the British, you're allied with the British, but Spalding's not a British agent per se, right? It's not, you're not trading with the king. Um, by the 1820s, 1830s, if you come to the U.S. agency and you come to the fort to trade, it's a pretty explicit statement um, of your loyalty. I interviewed Dr. Daniel Murphy and Dr. Andrew Frank as well as others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was Dr. Daniel Murphy, 
and Dr. Andrew Frank, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit our website at myfloridahistory.org and join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.